you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4, especially verses 2 through 6 as you're turning to Colossians 4. I think it's just probably wise to go ahead if the football is in the air this morning. Half of you are elated. Another half of you are depressed. I know you're depressed because you were very, very surprised that Ole Miss could come in to Starkville, Mississippi and beat State like they did Thursday night. And so I'm depressed also. No, we're excited to open God's Word this morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We had a great Thanksgiving. We have four Thanksgivings. We had a Wednesday night Thanksgiving, a Thursday Thanksgiving, a Friday Thanksgiving, and a Saturday Thanksgiving. So we have a lot of family. And so we enjoyed that. A lot of football, a lot of friends, a lot of family. And so we're glad to be back as I know you had and prayed that you had a great Thanksgiving. One of the things about going back to Mississippi, at least this uh, time that we were traveling, is there's a flu epidemic in Mississippi. So every family stop that we went to, someone was getting over the flu or uh, there were people that were not there because they had the flu. And so there was a tremendous amount of conversation about being contagious, whether someone was contagious or wasn't contagious. We had had our flu shots. So we felt like we were kind of immune to the contagions that were being spread there. And uh, if you have kids and you travel with kids, you know that you're, you're just one stomach bug away from a, a long vacation holiday. Uh, you've probably had that time where you're driving in the vehicle and your daughter or your son says, Mom, my stomach hurts. And then you just get ready for what that week is going to be like. Um, we know what it's like to, to spread things that we do not want to spread. Contagious and contagions are, are words that we use in some respects as, as what we do not want to spread. So I want to redeem the word contagious this morning. I want us to be reminded as Christians this morning that they are things that we are called to spread. That there are the, a message, there is a message that we are called to contagiously give away. And so this morning, as we conclude our series in the book of Colossians, I want us to think about what does it mean to be a contagious Christian? What does it look like to spread the hope of Christ that resides in you to your family, to your friends, to loved ones, to co-workers? What does it look like to be a contagious Christian? Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 through 6 remind us of those words where it says in the English Standard Version, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians chapter 4 is the conclusion, and it's, it's one of these chapters, and in many ways, if you're just looking at it as you're walking through God's Word, it's a skimmable passage, it's a, and sometimes it might be even skippable because you, you look at Colossians 4, and you see a lot of names there. 
It's, it's a roll call as Paul is landing the plane of his letter to the church there at Colossae. He says in verse 7, uh, tell Tychicus about all of my activities. I'm sending Onesimus with him. Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner and he greets the church there. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas and Justice, they've comforted Paul, he tells us. Epaphras greets the church there. Luke and Demas, they send their love. And so you have all of these names and it's very easy to say, well, it's just a conclusion. Conclusions don't get much respect in our culture and in our society. If you're in a work environment and you're at a conference and there's a consultant and they're speaking, if they ever say, if they ever give their hand away and say, in conclusion, what, what do you begin to notice? You begin to notice that everybody shuts down their laptops. They begin to get their phones out, text one another, where are we going to go eat lunch? People start fumbling for their keys. Uh, conclusions surely don't have anything of, of forward messaging to communicate to us. I mean, it's just wrapping things up. So there's really nothing to learn in a conclusion, right? Well, wrong. Paul, as he is concluding this letter, he, he concludes it with this wonderful reminder of what we are called as believers to spread, and that is the hope of Jesus Christ that resides in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are we to be contagious Christians? Well, he answers it for us in these verses at the start of Colossians chapter 4 with two powerful truths that I want to remind you of this morning. There are two characteristics of a contagious Christian. And the first is that we are called to consistently speak to God about people. We are called as contagious Christians to consistently speak to God about people. Verses 2 through 4, Paul starts it by saying, continue steadfastly in prayer. What is he doing? He's bookending Colossians 1 to Colossians 4. He's, he's tying a, a, a bow around this and he's reminding us of how he started this letter. What he started the letter with, this emphasis on prayer, he now brings it back as he's landing the plane of the book of Colossians and he says, what I told you in the beginning, I'm now bringing back to the end to remind you. You tell him in the beginning, you tell him at the end. This is this emphasis that Paul has, not only for that original audience, but for us. Do you remember how he opened the book? In verse 3 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he starts with this intercessory prayer. Now he is calling them to prayer. What he has done for them at the beginning of the book, now he is calling them to do for others. What is the foundation what, what is the basis, what, what is the very uh, emphasis that Paul is trying to set before us? Well, again, he, he did it at the beginning of the book, that, that sharing our faith, creating a culture in a church of gospel-centered conversations, it, it doesn't first and foremost begin by you recognizing all of the potential, all of the potential difficulties with the Christian faith. Like any, any possible uh, question that somebody might have, 
that you're only prepared to share your faith once you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten answers to any potential objection. And then once you can dismantle all the intellectual obstacles that one might have to becoming a Christian, then you're prepared to go share your faith. That, that's not what Paul says here. Paul says the first step of becoming a contagious Christian is to, to knock on the door of your heavenly father to intercede on behalf of those who do not know him. Continue, Paul said, steadfastly in prayer. We're called to be people like that that widow that is banging on the door of that unjust judge, trying to wake him out of his slumber. And Jesus would say, "If, if an unjust judge would wake up and grant her request, how much more so will your heavenly Father A good, loving, heavenly father grants your request. So we are called, like that widowed lady, to to wake up and to intercede on behalf of loved ones that do not know Christ. Our our family members, our friends, our co-workers, those uh, uncles and cousins and sons and daughters and moms and dads that we saw over Thanksgiving, that we are called to continue steadfastly in prayer for their salvation. And the greatest strategy for gospel-centered conversations and contagious Christianity and sharing our faith starts on our knees, praying steadfastly for God to open the hearts of those lost ones. Now, it's important as you're walking through this passage here to see that Paul talks about the prayer life. And he talks about it, that it has a vertical dimension and it has a horizontal dimension. And I think it's, a, it's an important aside to be reminded of, of, of the direction of our prayer life here. Notice that he says in verses 2 through 4 that our prayer life is to be characterized first and foremost by thanksgiving. So prayer isn't first a, a divine wish list that you have, that you, you send to the divine. It isn't just you gathering up the loose change of your prayers and depositing it into the vending machine of God and and punching in A2 and then out pops an answered prayer. That, That we don't start with prayer asking of God, but rather we start with prayer by praising God, by thanking God for his goodness. Jesus, he shows us this in the model prayer. The model prayer, the Lord's prayer, it doesn't start with, give us today our daily bread. But how does it start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It starts vertically, doesn't it? And when we get the ordering of prayer right, when you understand that prayer is to start first and foremost with a vertical praising of God, thanking of God. It changes what you pray for horizontally here. There is a healthy, consistent ordering to prayer throughout Scripture. And a way that you could remember this is that our praise to God precedes our petitions of God. That our praise to God precedes our petitions of God. So this morning you had the ability to, to wake up and to start life. And one of the ways to, to think of, of the ordering of your prayer life, the ordering of your communication to God is just to, to, to look within. And, and when you're able to get up in the morning, you have something to thank God for. 
when you're able to, to put two feet on the floor and to walk across the room, when you're able to breathe another breath, you need to know that that is a gift of God. When you walk outside in the crisp Birmingham uh, fall morning and you look around you and you see the changing of the colors of leaves, you see the beauty that is all around us and you need to know that that is the canvas of creation. There is something there to praise of God. And when you look within your heart and you see that he has redeemed you, that he has rescued you, there is something to praise God for. There is something to thank God for. We've been in a whole week of thanksgiving. And there's not one of us in this room that doesn't have this long list of physical attributes that he has bestowed upon us that we need to thank him for or the beauty of creation that is all around us that we need to thank him for or the spiritual gifts that he has bestowed upon us in our salvation and our sanctification and where we are headed to and the surety of our destination that we shouldn't thank him for. I know it might be difficult at work. I know it might be difficult in your family. I know it might be difficult internally in you. But there is always a basis, a foundation, if you are a basis of thanksgiving, that you have to be able to to begin your day with. Now, not only is there a vertical aspect to your prayer, but there's a horizontal aspect to our prayer life. Notice in verses 3 through 4 that he says, As he moves from praise to petition, he says, God, open a door for the word. Open a door so that I can declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, what does he not pray for? He doesn't ask, pray for me that I might be removed from imprisonment. He doesn't pray Pray that I would be set free from this Roman imprisonment that you can read about in Acts chapter chapter 21. He doesn't pray, uh, let me be removed from this Roman custody where he was probably under house arrest, probably chained to a guard. He doesn't pray, get me out of this situation. But he says, let me make the best of this situation. So while I'm in prison, may the word of God go forth in my imprisonment here. He prays for an open door to proclaim the mystery of Christ. What is this? It's not a a Sherlock Holmes mystery novel. It's not a P.D. James mystery novel here. But this this is the mystery of the gospel that was revealed in the Old Testament. How he would call the Israelites to be a blessing to all nations. And how in the midst of their disobedience... God created Jesus, sent him in the incarnation. He becomes the perfect Israel to be able to redeem not only the Jewish people that would call upon his name, but Gentiles. Why why many of us are here? Because the message of the gospel that started there in Jerusalem has gone forth, and here we are in Birmingham, Alabama, thanking him that the gospel has reached us. This is the mystery of Christ that he desires to be spread. And this is a great reminder that he doesn't say, Pray that I would have a strategy to be able to reach these people. He doesn't say, pray that I would have the perseverance to reach these people. He doesn't say, pray that the doors would open up and I'd be able to be set free and there'd be this great miracle and everybody would know. He says, pray that the power of the word would go forth. This is a great freeing reminder that prayer is what moves the hearts 
of those that do not know Christ, that praying for opportunities, for God to open a door to share our faith, praying for others that God would begin to break the hardness of their hearts, that this is the secret to gospel-centered conversations in your life and in my life and in our church. Post-Civil War, we're talking early, early, early Reconstruction. The nation was divided. You can imagine all of the political and social realities of America post-Civil War, 1856-1857. It was a very low point in our nation. Not only a low point in the, the division of the nation, but economically it was a very much a, a difficult time. Uh, the stock market crashes in 1857. Uh, banks fell in Chicago and Philadelphia. There's a raid upon the banks in New York City here. September 1857, in the midst of tremendous layoffs across our nation, there was a man by the name of Jeremiah Lampfear who said, we will begin to pray. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a church leader per se. He was a layperson, a businessman who said in New York City, let's meet at 12 o'clock at the North Dutch Church and we are going to pray. First day, six men show up at 12 o'clock to pray. The next week, 20 men show up to pray. The next week, 30 men show up to pray. About a year later, there were 10,000 men that were gathered praying during lunch. This, was, this is what was called the great businessmen's prayer revival. Not the first great awakening, not the second great awakening. At the result of this, in a three-year period, of 10,000 men at the, at the crescendo of this movement, 10,000 men praying during lunch in three-year period, about 500,000 individuals in America come to know Christ as their Savior. 500,000, half a million people. It was prayer that fueled one of the greatest revivals in our nation's history. I, I just want to remind you that prayer isn't something that we just pass over. That prayer isn't something that we just get past. But it is the very heartbeat of what we are called to be. As we ask God and we, we knock upon his door to save the souls of those who do not know him. I love uh, Leonard Ravenhill as he says it this way. That my church, or no church, is greater than the prayer life. Of, or let me say it again. No church is greater than its prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here. We fell everywhere. I'm convinced that in my life that I don't have more opportunities to share my faith, to be a contagious Christian because oftentimes I'm not on my knees Asking him to open my eyes to opportunities. Asking him to bring opportunities before me to be a witness for him, to be a contagious Christian. 
And I've seen it in my own life. And it is this wonderful reminder to me of, of when I can look back and to see those times where I've faithfully asked God to move in the hearts of people, how he has answered those prayers so specifically. And I know many of you in this room could give testimony of that. In the last three years, in my previous church, we had this movement within men that were called just discipleship groups, D-groups. We studied together in groups of three to four across our church. We studied scripture. We memorized scripture. But one of the things that we said was going to be different. It wasn't just going to be this inner, just purity, accountability kind of group. But it, but it needed to have an evangelistic. It needed to have a missional impetus to it. So in all of these groups, we said that we're going to pray. We're going to pray for one person that doesn't know the Lord, and we're going to commit every week to hold one another accountable, to just pray for opportunities. And I know in the groups that I was a part of, I could tell you story after story where God would open the hearts of, of very hardened coworkers. And they would come back in six months into our time, seven months into the time, or maybe even two years later, and say, let me tell you this story. I have this coworker. And he was so hardened to the God. He would always make fun of me as one who would go to church, this holy roller. But there happened to be this one time we were all having to go to this manager's wife's funeral. And he happened to be in the truck with me. And we happened to have 45 minutes. And he brought up spiritual things. He brought up uh, those kinds of conversations that allowed me in a natural way just to answer his questions. Now, why did he have that opportunity? Well, he had that opportunity, I'm 100% certain, because he was praying for that coworker. And God brought about a natural way for him to be able to have a conversation. If he would have forced that, it wouldn't have ended well. You know that, I know that. But God desires the salvation of your family. He desires the salvation of your friend. He desires the salvation of your coworker more than you do. So he is wooing. He's the great hound of heaven that is chasing after that person that you say, I don't know if I could ever share my faith with that person. I assure you that God desires his salvation. He desires to use you in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. You can't force that. You can't make that happen. But I'm here to tell you, he desires to bring them to that knowledge. And we are not a part of that unless we are individuals on our knees asking God for those kinds of opportunities. So the first characteristic of a contagious Christian is to consistently speak to God about people. The, the second and the final is to wisely speak to people about God. The second characteristic is just to wisely speak to people about God. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Boy, this is such a freeing passage when it comes to gospel-centered conversations. Look again, just at the details. Verse 5, walking wisdom toward outsiders. What is he doing? He's, he's coming to the horizontal. He's moved from, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're now into, give us this day our daily bread. Where our daily bread is not just food on the table, it's not just the paycheck at the end of the month, but rather it is the daily bread to be able to have wisdom and how I can be a contagious Christian to a hardened uncle, cousin, friend, neighbor, 
Give us the daily bread. Give us the wisdom to actually be faithful as salt and light. Give us the wisdom of how to relate to others because you know and I know that there is this delicate balance and delicate dance of how to engage people who do not want to talk about spiritual things and only the Holy Spirit can give you that kind of wisdom. There is not a six-step process There's just foolproof for sharing your faith in any and every circumstance and situation. You know that, I know that. Paul says, make the best of your time. Make the best of your time. There was, as theologians say, there was an eschatological emphasis in the New Testament. What does that mean? Well, just in ordinary terms, it meant that they were longing for the second coming of Christ. They were longing for the imminent return of Christ. And Paul is pointing them to that. We don't know how much time we have here. In that first century world, they saw the ascension and they were longing, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus quickly. Now we live 2,000 years after the ascension of Christ approximately, but we know that one day is like 1,000 years for us and so he will come and, and he will come quickly. I don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he is coming. We spend all of this time, I'm a premillennial, I'm a amillennial, I'm a postmillennial. We spend all of this time trying to speculate on the second coming of Christ. I, I love my, uh, Danielle's grandmother. We used to always go to her house at Thanksgiving. She's with the Lord now. But she used to always say, she was in her mid-90s, a sweet, wise lady that never had a college education. She would say, David... I'm not a millennial. I'm not a pre-millennial. I'm not a post-millennial. I'm a, I'm a pan-millennial. It's just all going to pan out in the end there. <laughs> and what she was saying is just, it doesn't really matter. Just be about the business that he's called you to. We get distracted in all these like theological crossing of T's, dot and of I's. You don't, you don't have to figure all of that out. You have your directive. I have my directive. Make the best use of the time that you have. Your time on this earth is not infinite. It's finite. You don't have to pray for an answer of that. You know that. I know that. We will either meet him in death or we'll meet him in his second coming. So in the in-between, in that little dash between your date of birth and your date of death, you need to ask, what am I investing my dash in? Now Paul, in verses 5 through 6, he says that we are called to walk in wisdom to others. We, We are called to let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's just such wisdom to what Paul is saying here because oftentimes we think of sharing our faith as memorizing this presentation and just knocking down doors. I mean, just kicking the door down. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And the majority of people in this room think, I could never share my faith. I could never be a contagious Christian because you have to be sort of a Navy SEAL Christian to do that kind of stuff. You've got to be a green, beret, aggressive kind of, I'm just going in for the kill kind of Christian to be able to share your faith. But what does Paul say here? He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salsa, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He doesn't say anything about you memorizing. Great presentations. God has used door-to-door evangelism. There might very well maybe many of you in this room that come to know, have come to know Christ through that kind of presentation. But many of you haven't. And what Paul is saying here is, is that when you bathe your loved ones in prayer, oftentimes I'm going to open up a door that you could not open. And I'm going to give you the opportunity 
to share the goodness of my grace in a way that that person is bringing up the conversation. Well, this is freeing here. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, one of the greatest freedoms that you can have is the reminder that you don't save anyone. It is not your responsibility to save anyone. It's your responsibility to deliver the message. That's all your responsibility is. And you could take off a lot of the pressure of what it means to be a contagious Christian when you understand that God is in the business of drawing people to you. So we need to pray for wisdom and understanding of how I can be salt and light in whatever circumstance that God puts me in. I remember, I've got like four different closing illustrations. And so I've got three sermons. So I can just pick different ones. So I'm going to start with this one and we'll go on from the next sermons. Okay, so three or four years ago, we went to the Ekoe Sunday School Guys Trip. Uh, about 10 of us. And we get to the Ekoe. We're going to get two different boats. And me and the old Miss Beat Rider for the Daily Journal, we end up in one boat with six other guys, approximately six other guys that were on a bachelor, you know, wedding weekend party down the Ekoe. And so me and him get with these guys. They're like 23, 24, 25. And I said, do not tell them at the beginning that I'm a Baptist preacher. Please don't tell them that. Okay, so we're down on the Ekoe, and it was, boy, it was a interesting full ride of the Ekoe kind of trip. They had a friend of theirs that was a part of the wedding party that last, the, the Friday night before, we were going down on a Saturday, that had gotten arrested. So a lot of the conversation was, is how are we going to bail this guy out before the wedding? I mean, it was a salty ride down the Ekoe there. And it was just a lot of things being thrown around and I was just listening and they, you know, nobody was really asking anything. So we rode the bull, we get down to the end, we've got like eight minutes left at the Ekoe it's pretty, pretty small, uh, you know, pretty stable kind of time on the boat. And so one of the guys turned to me and he said, David, uh, you know, we didn't even ask, but what, what do you do for a living? And so I said, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. And that boat got so silent. <laughs> And then for like the, the, the next eight minutes, it became the most religious boat on the Ekoe. I mean, like all of these guys, I mean, they're, oh yeah, I mean, I got baptized when I was nine years old. I mean, it became just this religious ride down the Ekoe here. And I just thought to myself that all of us are in those kinds of situations where we're, we're thinking to ourselves, how do we walk in wisdom toward outsiders? How do we share our faith in a natural way? Now, most of you are not going to be in the Koei. Most of you are not Baptist preachers. Most of you are not with like a bachelor uh, guy's weekend on the wedding. There, I mean, most of you are not in those situations, but all of us are in those situations in one way or the other. We're asking the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to be contagious Christians, and I'm here to remind you it's not as much about what you memorize. It's not as much about all of the arguments that you have to break down the intellectual obstacles to the Christian faith. But I'm here to remind you that a contagious Christian is one who consistently speaks to God about people. 
And a contagious Christian is someone who wisely speaks to people about God. These next three weeks, these next four weeks, you have an opportunity to pray for one and to invite one. In the Christmas season, there is no better time to think, how can I wisely, in the midst of all of the wonderful Christmas activities here at Dawson, three candlelight services, Christmas services, in the midst of our culture, we say exclamation point to Christmas. It is a wonderful, safe way that you, over the next few weeks, could pray for one and invite one, wisely thinking through how you could live a contagious Christian life. Let us pray. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be light and to be salt. That the Holy Spirit resides in us and desires more than anything else to point people to Christ. May we understand that we don't save anyone, but we are called to be faithful messengers of the good news of the gospel. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't have a family member, a friend, a loved one who doesn't come to mind now. So we commit over this Christmas season to consistently bringing them before your throne, asking you to open a door, asking you to break down the hardness of their heart and that the true light of the gospel would shine in their soul. May we be faithful messengers of the gospel message. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing this hymn of invitation. Will you respond as God has spoken to you? Maybe today you just need to make an altar of where you stand and is where you sing, committing to God for that one this morning, that nephew of yours, that son of yours, that daughter of yours, that father, that co-worker, that you would pray that God would break down the hardness of their hearts. Maybe today you realize that there's never been a time in your life, never been a time in your life where you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Would you come this morning? Maybe God is leading you to this church home. Will you come this morning as we sing? Will you respond as God has spoken to your heart?